Well, that video always is shocking. I mean, no matter how many times I've watched it this past week, and some of you, I can see you're actually teary-eyed. It's amazing how different the two images are, isn't it? And their self-description and the description of others. And especially when this video is watched in conjunction with Romans 3, I think there are two important observations that that are affirmations really about us as human beings. The first is, and she says it, the way we view ourselves impacts everything about us. The way we treat our family, the way we work at our jobs, the way we interact with our communities. But secondly, it also affirms that the way we view ourselves many times is so skewed, isn't it? The way we have this self-perception of ourselves, it's either overly optimistic (laughs) to a damaging form, or as we saw in this video, it can be overly critical to the point that we become self-degrading. This question of identity, who am I really? It's one of the most important questions we can ask of ourselves as human beings. But really, when we ask that question, who am I? I don't want somebody just to describe me. You know, 6'2", 175 pounds, green eyes, addicted to coffee. That doesn't make me feel good, right? But what I'm looking for more than just a description is affirmation. Who you are is okay, right? You are loved, well done. You're good. A friend of mine She's actually chronicling her life in a novel she's writing, her own personal faith journey. And I think she captures this longing really eloquently in a paragraph from her work. She says, I wanted love desperately and approval more than the kind that comes up on the screen when your credit card has been accepted. In fact, I would settle for adequate. I wanted someone to say, well done, instead of, is that the best you can do? Or, as my mother phrases it, trying to give me a bit of a break, I suppose that's the best you can do. We all long for approval, don't we? And we go looking in so many places, so many spaces, whether it's other relationships, projects at work that we bury ourselves in, that we might finally hear, well done. You're good. We love you. We're hardwired for approval. God's designed us this way, An approval that comes from someone outside of ourselves. Someone greater than ourselves. And rather than embracing what God has said about us, many times we hide. We hide who we really are. We hide by keeping people from really knowing the real us with this projection of false confidence. Or we keep people at a distance and we ignore what's right in front of us because what's right in front of us is the us we don't even want to face. The us we're scared to face. The us that we've coded with all sorts of lies so that we can at least feel a fake stability. It's these lies the Apostle Paul attacks here in Romans 3. It's these ancient lies that the gospel is contradicting, that the gospel is confronting. You see, this isn't just a 21st century problem where we hide behind our Facebook profile pics. Adam and Eve, they hid behind ancient bushes, right? They had their own way of covering their identity, of trying to navigate the shame they felt before God. So this morning, where so many are trying to define who you are by your status, by your age, by your race, we have to learn to let God have the final word on who we are. In our passage, we're going to discover two things. 
Two things. First, there are two common lies that we believe about ourselves that our passage unearths and then destroys. Two common lies we believe about ourselves that destroy our relationships, that destroy our work lives and our home lives. And then secondly, we don't want to just know what the lies are. We want to know how we let God have the final word in our lives. So we're going to unearth these two lies and then also pragmatically walk through how God has invited us to see who we really are in Him. But before we do that, we've got to pray. Um, because self-evaluation and self-perception is so easily skewed, and it's so hard to see who we really are many times when we don't want to see who we really are. Okay, so let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning. We're just bathed in the songs that we've been singing up to this point. The great advocate we have in Christ. The cornerstone that he is where the weak are made strong in the gospel. This is the beauty that we enter into, but we have to be honest about seeing ourselves in light of who you are. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are willing to be molded, minds that are willing to be enlightened by your word. God, you are so good. Give us the courage to see who we are and then to see who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we step into the middle of a letter to the ancient church of Rome, first century church. And they're actually wrestling through an identity crisis themselves for various societal reasons. The Jews and the Gentiles have been separated in Rome, but now they're able to worship together, centered on the work of Jesus Christ. But with their mixture of religious and irreligious backgrounds, there were a lot of questions on what it actually meant to be okay before God. What, it, what does it mean to actually be a Christian? Who am I? And so the Gentiles, they're wrestling through this, whether they need to, to keep all the old ancient uh, Israelite laws to actually be okay in the Christian faith. And, and the Jews couldn't fathom anyone being acceptable to God without upholding the law. And so in this floundering early church, we see two common lies that find their way into our hearts, many times unaware. And the first lie we come across is the lie, I can be good enough on my own. I can be good enough on my own. Instead of seeking outward approval, we just kind of lay all that aside and we say, fine, I'm going to be the final authority. I'm going to give myself the approval I've been longing for. And it's subtle how we come to this conclusion, actually. First, we engage in this selective comparison. We're really good at this in order to convince ourselves that we're not the worst person in the world. It comes out in phrases that we use where we say, at least I'm not as bad as. At least I'm not as bad as Hitler. I mean, who's as bad as Hitler, you know? At least I'm not as bad as Osama bin Laden. At least I'm not as bad as Judy, who always is messing up the copier at work. You know, who is it? Who's the worst person you can think of? And then when people begin to press into us, we deflect with comparison at the same time, don't we? We say, well, have you noticed or have you seen Judy's war wardrobe? I don't know why Judy keeps popping up in here, but she does. You know, or have you seen Bob's attitude? You think I have a cranky attitude. Well, you should meet Bob, right? And so we are very skillful at showing we're not the worst, and therefore we assume we're, we're okay. If we're not the worst person, we've got to be fine, right? We're okay, but even defining who is the worst, it requires a lot of mental gymnastics. 
It requires another step. Not just selective comparison, but personalized standards. We all have them. If I just meet this goal, at this timeline, I'll be okay, right? If I don't get too drunk at the party, I'm all right. You know, if I don't get that girl pregnant, I'll be good. We've all got these different standards, but one of the problems with both selective comparison and personalized standards is that we end up living our lives before a figurative American Idol judge panel daily. We think that if we will we'll only be accepted if we're not the worst performer. We all know those terrible bloopers where people are so unaware of how terrible they are musically and they get up there and they sing and they're cracking and, and the judges are like making these squints and we think, oh, that's not me. At least I'm not that person. And we all giggle because we feel good about ourselves. And so we feel like if we just are not the worst person performing, then we'll be accepted. We'll continue on in the game. For some of you, every day of your life is hanging in the balance. Now, you probably have zoned out, some of you, up to this point, because you think, oh, that's not a lie I believe in. That's not me. Um, I'm good. I don't do that sort of stuff. Well, here are two diagnostic questions, I think, that we need to ask ourselves. You need to ask yourself to see if this is true for you. I was thinking through this. Because it's so easy to just throw that argument off. Oh, I don't believe that if I'm just good enough, I'm accepted. Well, here's two diagnostic questions. First, are you someone who's ruled by fear? Are you someone who's ruled by fear? When we must meet certain standards to feel good about ourselves, even if they're low standards, I mean, they could be rock-bottom standards, then every task, every relationship, every job becomes a battle to answer whether you're good or not, good enough or not. Any challenge, whether it be a new relationship or a new venture or an ongoing relationship, it can become paralyzing with fear. Because if you fail, then you're no longer going to feel good enough about yourself. At every juncture comes the point for justifying your existence. So fear becomes characteristic in your life. It may be subtle, it may be overwhelming but it still owns you. The second question we ask is, are you an overbearing person? (laughs) Usually overbearing people don't think so. Um, So that's a hard one to answer. But if you have to meet certain answer or standards in your life to be good enough, then when things are going well, you become obnoxious because you've got your act together. You've got your standard and you're meeting it. You know how the world works. What's going on? I've got this. And nobody wants to be around you because you're totally obnoxious. And when things are going awful, you become depressed, right? And everyone feels overwhelmed when they're around you because you failed your own standards, and so you feel like you're bringing everybody down with you. Your whole value is found in how you are performing that particular day between your figurative American Idol judge panel. Is that what you want? Is that what any of us wants for life? I don't want that. And here's the good news. God doesn't want that for you either. Actually, we find here in Romans 3 that God tells us one of the hardest truths, but one of the best truths for us. As we try to make all these careful distinctions, God speaking through the Apostle Paul says what? There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction, selective comparison or not. 
We're all in the same boat. And it's kind of beautiful because God takes sin seriously. Sometimes in our lives, we have people who say, just accept you, you know? When I know what I've done or, 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 or situations I see are clearly wrong and are broken, just accept it. I don't want to accept it, you know? There's something wrong about just accepting what we've done. But God takes sin seriously because he doesn't want that sort of life for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, which is comforting and kind of scary all at the same time. And throughout the first three chapters of Romans, Paul's making this argument, and he makes it clear that no matter what standard we want to hold ourselves to, according to God's perfect standard, we've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark big time. It's the definition of sin is missing the mark of perfection. You see, not only are we not good enough on our own, and this is, this is a big miss, but that very goal of just trying to be good enough on our own is short-sighted when we come to the gospel. God doesn't want us to just be good enough, but from the dawn of time, he's created humanity to be what? Beautiful, glorious. We confessed it to d- together in our call to worship. He calls us to be stunning. Roman, or Psalm uh, chapter 8, verse 5. We see that God made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with what? Glory and honor. But we've fallen short of that glory. So when you think that I can be good enough on my own, not only is that not possible, but we miss how far we've fallen. We haven't gone from kind of good to sort of bad, but from beautifully glorious to dead with an incrossable chasm by ourselves. So don't believe the lie that you can be good enough on, the, on your own if you just do the right things. Hear the law of God as it pulls back the curtain on your life and shows us all that we're equally messed up. There is no distinction. Thank God that God isn't a flatterer, right? We know flatterers. As a pastor, sometimes you can have the temptation to be a flatterer. But God isn't a flatterer. He tells us how it is. And some of the best counselors, some of the best people we know in our lives that we love and admire, what do they do? They tell us how it is. They help us face the facts about reality. And he tells us we've fallen short. But the question that really comes is, will we listen? A change your life kind of listening. You know, while I was in Chicago going to seminary, um, I had the opportunity to be a worship pastor at a smaller church. And um, I remember when I came in, there was this uh, younger woman. She was super sweet. Um, had a couple kids. Um, but she was tone deaf. And she'd been singing on the worship team for years. And I got in there. It was my first week. And I said, has anybody talked to her about this? And nobody would talk with her. They would all talk behind her back and say, oh, she's terrible. Don't schedule me with her. But then they would go up to her and say, oh, great job. We're so glad you're serving. And I thought, what's going on here? I went to the senior pastor and I said, why hasn't anybody talked with her? And he said, that's why we hired you. I said, oh, okay, great. Starting it off strong here. Here we go. So what we did is we did a series of tryouts um, to kind of figure out where people were gifted and to really empower them to succeed in worship ministry. And... uh, and what we did is, Yvonne was her name. I can say it because you'll never meet her, um, as far as I know. Um, and as she came in, she sat in the office, and we sang through a couple songs. And I would ask her, how do you think you did? 
She goes, oh, I think I did great. Oh, you know, I think I did great, you know, and uh, I said, well, actually, Yvonne, you were flat the whole way through. Um, but why don't we try this for the next couple weeks? I'm going to give you some vocal lessons. We're going to try to strengthen that diaphragm, give you some better posture, see what we can do. Week four um, comes along, and nothing has changed. Bless her heart. And, you know, we use this phrase so we can say whatever we want. Um, <laughs> bless her heart. And we're sitting there, and we sing through two more songs, and I say, Yvonne, how do you think you did? What do you think? How do you think you've grown? And she looks at me with tears in her eyes, and she goes, for some reason it feels the exact same, and I'm starting to see it. I don't know if I'm going to get any better. And she eventually told her story. I mean, she'd had such a broken past, but she just wanted to serve. She didn't even care if it was with music or not, but she just wanted a place to serve. And over and over again, what she kept saying was, I just don't know why no one told me. I just don't know why no one told me that I was flat this whole time. I said, well, sometimes people just don't know how to say it. It's not that they don't love you. It's not that I don't love you. It's just, we just don't, we're just not very good at communicating the truth sometimes. We're afraid. We're ruled by fear, even in these small ways. And what we did is we hooked her up with the PowerPoint, and she owned it. She had these great managerial gifts. And man, we were suffering up there, and she brought it from zero to hero up there. She was awesome. She trained some more, uh, uh, some other servers underneath her, so when she was gone on vacation. And as far as I know, she's still serving there. And everybody kind of breathed a sigh of relief. She was willing to listen. She had such a humble persona about her, just longing to serve. She was willing to hear the painful facts and then to adjust whatever that looked like. She just wanted to be used. And as painful as it is sometimes, it's the best thing in the world to hear that we're all messed up because we all know it, don't we? We don't need to play games. We don't have to live a lie because living lies are really exhausting, aren't they? Goodness gracious, when you're stuck in a lie, you're constantly fabricating a fake reality. That takes a lot of imaginative energy to consistently be crafting this world that doesn't exist except in your own mind. Now, if we actually hear the gospel, we hear there is no distinction. You have sinned, and therefore you have fallen short of God's perfect standard, His glory, and what He has designed us to be. Glorious beings. Now, if we come to believe this truth, that we are sinners, then we may actually overcompensate and go to the other extreme, which Paul also wrestles through here, and, and how we see ourselves. And we, we can come to believe, not that I can be good enough on my own, but I, could, I couldn't possibly be accepted. That's the other extreme. I couldn't possibly be accepted. I know I can't be good enough. As a matter of fact, I can never do anything right, it seems. I'm the worst person in the world. Who would ever like me? God could never really love me. No one could ever really love me. I'm so unworthy. And this is a lie that I think can be even more harder to overcome, more subtle to battle, because we often somehow correlate this with humility. It has this posture of brokenness. We tend to isolate ourselves from community because we feel so worthless. But this is anything but humility. You see, it still focuses on what I can do 
and what I can't do. If you truly embrace this lie, you're going to end up depressed, you're going to end up angry, and you're probably going to end up alone. Rather, hum- rather than humility, this is described as self-pity. Self-pity. It's very, di- it's very slight, but it changes our world drastically. Self-pity is when a self-absorbed person realizes that they're not as good as they want to be. And rather than looking to someone greater, they just keep mulling over their failures, beating themselves down, looking in, bent inward on their focus over and over again. I am terrible at my job. I am a terrible husband. I, 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 me, me, me. And the only difference is It's not different that you're still the center of your world, but you and your world stinks. And so you get depressed. You get broken down. You're like, man, if I can't do this, I thought I could be good enough. But when I look honestly at myself, no, I can't be good enough. So man, my world stinks. And I stink. And we spiral down further and further. So overwhelmed with guilt and self-condemnation that you can't even imagine that anyone else would ever really love you and accept you. For you, even God isn't powerful enough to overcome the weight of your own sin. You've placed yourself so mighty that your wrongs are more powerful than God's right. Is this you this morning? This is also kind of hard to diagnose. And so I want to ask you another diagnostic question to help us at least a little bit. See if you're believing this lie. So first, do you withdraw from healthy risks? Are you so self-condemning that the normal risks with relationships, they seem like a setup for failure? When somebody puts their hand out, you're very guarded. You're overwhelmed. You can't imagine any relationship risk as worth it because you feel like you're just going to botch it up. So why even try? And what happens sometimes is when we're so self-absorbed, like I said, we don't normally connect this with self-absorption, that we end up getting left to ourselves because we keep pushing everyone away, saying we deserve to be alone. We just hurt people. I can't be near people. I just destroy people. I'm not worth it. And we're isolated from community in this downward spiral of self-condemnation and isolation. Self-condemnation, further isolation. Self-condemnation, further isolation. A spiral that's very hellish, very destructive not what God wants for us. God wants us to know that we can never be what he designed us to be on our own. Yeah, we're sinners, but he doesn't want us to stop there. It's here Paul gives us the gospel reveal if he's putting these two pictures next to one another. In Christianity, we not only take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously and it makes sense of our world, But we also take grace seriously because God takes grace seriously and simultaneously. It's very paradoxical. It's beautiful. And it all hinges, this is one of the most beautiful parts, not on what I can do and what I can't do, but on what Jesus has done and is doing. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed apart from the law. I love how Eugene Peterson captures this in his message paraphrase. But in our time, 
Something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. Because Jesus, there are no lost causes. There are no lies that we can truly embrace that says, I couldn't possibly be accepted. No matter how far gone, how broken, how messed up we are, we can finally hear the words our hearts are longing for, the very words that God, told, God the Father told his son, because we are now united with him. You are my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. He says that to all his adopted sons and daughters in Christ. That is what he says to us. How is this even possible? If God is so just in upholding the punishment that is worthy of sin, and yet he is so merciful, how do these come together? Well, the first thing we have to get is that in God's way of doing things, his acceptance of us isn't based on our performance. It couldn't be. We're too fickle and we're too fallen. We've already covered this. Rather, we find ourselves in the book of Romans in a courtroom. This is the metaphor that Paul's picking up here. Not the people's court, but God's court, where he is the presiding judge. He's holy, he's just, he's perfect, and only his opinion matters. We find ourselves standing before his throne, our knees knocking, hearing all of our crimes against humanity, those that are seen, those that are not seen, as we hear in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. All of our crimes against our creator God, the way he's designed us. And as God goes through these litany of crimes, in a sense, it seems like they go on forever, and we feel hopeless. We feel like we don't have a defense, because we don't in and of ourselves. It's not my school's fault. It's not my dog's fault that I said what I said when I stubbed my toe because I was chasing her because she was bringing the leash. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my job's fault. It's on me. And the only sentence that is right when we disobey and rebel against our creator God and therefore pursue destruction in our lives is death. This is the proclamation and the penalty that we deserve according to God's word and his design in a broken world. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All those laws righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed apart from the law. How can things be made right apart from God's law? It's through his son, Jesus, who then takes our guilty verdict upon himself and the punishment with it, therefore satisfying the just wrath of God by his death. This big word, it's not a bad word, it's a very good word, we just don't use it very often, his propitiation. Ooh, you know, half of us couldn't spell it. I still. I'm a theologian and I have trouble spelling it. But Paul talks about this in verse 25. It's the idea that the satisfying of God's just punishment of sin, whom God put forward to be a propitiation by his blood. Through his death, he satisfies the punishment that we deserved on the cross. So through trusting Jesus' death as sufficient to pay our penalty, we're able to not only be pardoned, but declared glorious once again. It's not just our guilt is removed, but we are declared right, well done, 
You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This declaration before the throne of God is made through Christ and we are justified apart from anything whatsoever we can do. But by his grace as a gift through what Jesus did. You see, in this, the gospel, we no longer find our identity in our successes. We no longer find our identity in our failures. But we're only able to find our identity, our truest selves, and what Jesus has done for us and who God has said we now are. Not the declarations of your family, not the declarations of some of your critical friends or your boss, but in Christ. And being declared right, we are released from this prison of self-righteousness, which is such a burden to wear, and the prison of self-condemnation that puts us deeper and deeper into the ground. Only God has the right to be the judge. Not me. Not you. Not them, whoever them is to you. Only God. And it's here God is both just and the justifier for the one who puts his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ. No other religion takes sin and grace seriously simultaneously. Allah, he does not take grace and sin seriously. It is about justice. It is about a a, a theology of fear. Allah will pound you. He has not made a way for forgiveness and mercy. No other religion takes you out of the courtroom. Only in Christianity do we find that the trial is finished in Jesus. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they've been pointing to it, what is it? The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And... Oh, this is the beautiful part. And are justified by his grace as a gift whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood, which is found in the redemption in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. Why does he do this? This is so that God's righteousness might be revealed. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It is his righteousness that is now revealed at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has their faith in Jesus. Now, for some of you this morning, this is new news. But for many of you this morning, this isn't new news, but it doesn't really feel like real news. We hear this, but we don't feel it. Every day you battle to be sucked back into the courtroom, justifying your existence. You slide back into the performance trap. And rather than resting in God's declaration of who you are in Christ by faith, we seek to say, I'm important, look at me. So regardless of where you are in your journey, we all want to know how we let God have the final word, right? How do we actually do this? Well, step one requires that you admit you've been living a lie. You admit you've been living a lie. Now, this presupposes you're willing to actually look at yourself honestly through the lens of Scripture. This takes courage. 
It takes the work of the Holy Spirit. It takes, for some of you, it'll take a moment of absolute desperation when you're exhausted from living the lie and you can't do it anymore. But when you finally admit you've been living a lie, you admit it to God, you admit it to yourself, and you admit it to others. Any life that does not have Christ's work at the center will always leave us empty. I remember I was with a few friends um, down in Florida on a trip. His grandparents, this is in college, his grandparents had a timeshare. And we were walking on the beach, and we saw these two college girls drinking in this pool, and they were taking selfies. You know, everybody know what a selfie is? It's like when you hold up the phone, and you're like doing that crazy face. And they're acting like they're at this huge party, taking this selfie, right? And they, they get done taking the selfie, and we're kind of giggling in the background, the college boys. And we were, we're watching this happen, and then they put down their phones, and then they like have this posture. You know, they're trying to put this persona, oh, they're the fun girls. They're the ones always partying. They know where these, the action's at. And they're building this whole persona that's a lie. And when they're done working on their lie, they look bored, exhausted, and frustrated. <laughs> it's very heartbreaking in one sense. I mean, in one sense, you think, oh, selfies, those are ridiculous in the beginning. But what we're talking about here, when we're talking about admitting that we've been living the lie, is the Christian language of confession confession. Naming lies in our lives on what they actually are and how they're destroying our lives. We feel like sometimes confession can be such a burden. It can feel so overwhelming, but actually it's a gift from God to humanity. We see in 1 John, right? Chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you need to admit you've been living a lie this morning? Even if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, these lies, they creep back in. And maybe it's not one of these lies, but it's another lie that just tries to undermine the, undermine the gospel and who God's declared you to be in Jesus. Well, after you've admitted you've been living a lie, the next step is in letting God have the final word is daily reliving the gospel story as your story. I love what Tulian Chavijan, that's a crazy name, says, the primary message of the Bible then is this, the lawmaker became the law keeper and died for me, the lawbreaker. We have to receive daily, by faith, the gift that Jesus has lived, the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, and rose again, offering the hope of everlasting life, and that he did it because of us and for us. Those are critical. It's not just a historical understanding, but a personalization. So stop reliving your old failures and start reliving the gospel daily. Remember that Jesus took the unjust verdict by the hands of wicked men so that we could receive a righteous verdict by a loving God. The evil one, he doesn't want us to rest. We sang about this in Before the Throne of God above. He doesn't want us to rest in our newfound declaration but he always is trying to pull us back into the courtroom. You could be walking your dog. You could be in the grocery store sitting with your family at dinner, at the computer at work. And slowly Satan brings back in those old accusations. And usually it's accompanied with, and you call yourself a Christian. You should be a lot further along in your Christian journey. You should be so ashamed of yourself. And he's whispering these to us. 
bringing us back into the courtroom. And here's the thing. Many of these accusations are probably true. (laughs) That's the hard part. Satan knows us very well. But the difference is, is it no longer defines us. It no longer defines us. And this is where many times in our culture we say, listen to your heart. Where's your heart guiding you? Well, we've got to stop sometimes listening to our heart and start speaking to our heart. We have to start, this is the language of meditation we see in the Psalms. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. He can't even talk to anyone else or to God at this point. He's speaking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who has forgiven all your iniquity, instantly he jumps to the self-condemnation that he many many times jumps to. Remember, O soul, who you are and who God is. Stop just listening to your heart and take some ownership and start talking to your heart. A good sign that we're doing this and doing this well, that we're living by faith rather than this performance, is how we receive the gospel. When you receive a gift, what does it do? It usually makes you pretty humble. It makes you gracious and and fills you with gratitude. Because gifts don't tend to make us arrogant, right? And this is what Paul talks about in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by a law of faith. This principle of faith, a new way of looking at life. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There's a huge difference in our response when we receive a paycheck over against when we receive a gift. A paycheck, it fills us with personal pride. We've earned that. We've worked for it. A gift, it's out of the generosity of someone else. And it should drive us not with guilt, but gratitude. Not with arrogance, but with humility. So what is your demeanor about your day? Are you receiving the gospel as a gift? And the final step on how we let God have the final say, the final word on our lives is by actually believing what God says about us. This is so hard. So hard. Here's a test. What if Christ were seated in a chair next to you? And someone asked God, which person do you love the most? Which person is more acceptable to you? Which person is holy, righteous, and blameless before you? Do you really think that God says they're equally loved, equally accepted, equally righteous? Do you believe that? Because that's what God says and sees inside Christ when we are united with Christ by faith. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, only in the gospel of Jesus Christ you get the verdict before the performance. Wow. Only in the gospel, you get the verdict before the performance. What if we actually believed that? What if we actually believed that? I think we would stop trying to always justify ourselves with overwork or comparison in our work. Rather, we would be known as people who sacrifice our own wants and successes for others. We wouldn't need to be the center of attention and conversations because Jesus and his work is the center of our lives, not us. We can actually become a self-forgetful kind of person focused on others, focused on God's kingdom, not my kingdom, and his purposes. 
because our identity isn't found in our performance review. It's because God has declared you right and good, well done because of what Jesus has already done and finished on the cross. How we see ourselves, it impacts everything about us. And many times it is so skewed. Let God have the final word on who you are and how you see yourself. You were that bad. If you don't know Christ, you still are that bad. (laughs) But in Christ, know that you're that good. But not because of you, but because Jesus is that good. And God the Father is that gracious. Will you trust in what God has done for you in Christ? And if you have, will you let Christ truly be your life? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you uh, this morning. This is hard when we compare many times the way we view ourselves over against the etching that we have now in the gospel. We many times realized how skewed we are at seeing ourselves because we many times just miss the total understanding that Jesus should be at the center of our identity, who we are. God, if there are those here in this room who do not know you, may your Holy Spirit continue to work on them and guide them towards the purposes of the gospel. May they find their identity in Jesus. May they proclaim him as their Lord and Savior. And for those of us who have been walking with Christ for a while, May you help us realign our life with the truth of God's word and who you've declared us to be and not these lies that so easily tear us down and make us toxic. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on a regular basis, we respond by coming to the Lord's table, a tangible way of proclaiming the gospel to our senses by touch and taste and smell. For you tactile learners, this is very important. But at this moment, we remind ourselves that we receive the gospel freely. The elements are given to us without charge. We find in the bread, we remember Jesus' body that was given and then broken for us, equally messed up people. And when we receive the juice, we remember Jesus was given to be a propitiation by his blood for us. You see, for the, for the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, you do not need to be a member of Christ's community to partake, but we do ask that you are a follower of Jesus Christ to come partake in communion. Also know, this isn't an obligation, but it's an opportunity for you to come. If you do decide to come, you can come down the center aisle, circle around back to the two communion stations in the back, and partake in groups of four to six. You'll take the cracker, dip it in the juice, and partake together and return to your seats here. Whenever you're ready, please come. Please come to the Lord's table. Take a moment of silence and Stephen will come and lead us in song while we wait and while we partake.